I'd like to talk about impermanence. Last week, Hogan talked about the three marks. The three marks are a way to identify a Buddhist teaching. So a Buddhist teaching, to be truly aligned with what the Buddha taught, needs to involve the three marks. The three marks are dukkha, dissatisfaction or friction or suffering that's inherent in a human life, anatta or non-self or constructed temporary self, constantly changing self, and anicca, impermanence, which is constant change, flux, and flow. So the Buddha, in his years of contemplation and study, realized and then taught these as the three marks of existence, of our existence, the three conditions that characterize all of life, the three conditions that are always true and always present. So I want to ask you, what difficulties have you experienced? Hopefully you were even just during this meditation period, becoming aware of impermanence in a more detailed and precise way, as you did Kinhin and as you're meditating, watching your thoughts. But what difficulties have you encountered in life because of impermanence? Just a few examples. You can, we don't need the mic. You can just raise your hand and I'll repeat it. What difficulties have you experienced in life? Death of a loved one, that's a huge one, right? When someone that we really care about dies, that can be a real, a real source of grief and suffering for a long time, a hole in our heart. Because of impermanence, what else? What, what else has, just think of the world right now. Burning Man, anybody read about Burning Man? 73,000. Estimated people stuck at Burning Man because of torrential rain, and it's turned into a sea of mud, and they can't drive out. So they've told them to conserve water and food and fuel. 73,000 might be an overestimate, but that's what the newspapers say. At least 50,000 people stuck in mud up to their ankles. So usually it's sand, you know, the wind blows around, and... People get sand in their eyes and in their tents, but now it's mud. So what other examples? From your own life or from news? Laptop infected with a virus. There you go. Blew me out of my savings accounts checking it. <laughs> did, you, did you actually get hacked? I didn't lose anything, but just the computer and online. Yeah. The whole works. Right. So we, so we have this... Precious possession, our computer, and then it doesn't work. Or it wipes out something we were just writing as an assignment for two hours from now, right? So something that gives us joy is also can be a source of suffering. What else? Lots of relationships, friendships, or romantic relationships that end. Yes. Yes. A very um, loving relationship that then changes and ends. 
very common example. It can apply to all kinds of relationships like our children, you know, adorable as babies and then irritating as teenagers and then (laughs) don't grow into the person we had imagined they were going to grow into. Of course, that was true of us and our, oh, great, thank you. Yeah, right there. So difficulties and impermanence. So you go to your the restaurant in order the, to order the dish you've just been looking forward to, and it's closed, or they don't have it. Other people ate it before you got there. It's so annoying. What else? Weather. Weather. Oh my gosh, we've really been experiencing that recently here, haven't we? Dry, 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 dry. Hot, 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 hot. Rain, 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 rain. Okay, enough rain. Hot again. No, it's too hot. T-O-O is, you know, suffering. (laughs) Right? Too hot, too cold. Yeah. So... Impermanence presents us with lots of examples of, of suffering. I mean, as you, you know, enter old age, like Hogan and I are, that there's just like every day there's examples of things you could used to be able to do and you can't do anymore. Or a body that used to perform in a certain way or didn't hurt, and now it hurts all the time. So the difficulties of impermanence and how if we're not aligned with it, it causes us suffering. So it can be very stressful to have things constantly changing. You know, think of Ukraine. It used to be Ukraine. Then the Crimea got taken away. Then they got attacked. You know, just who expected that? We can lose our composure. We can get upset. It can test our hard-won equanimity. In very small ways. I mean, we've, we've just talked about big ways, but it can be very small ways. Like in the kitchen, we have storage containers for leftover food, which is very important because on day off, that's how we eat, right? Is we eat leftovers from the week, and especially from today. So don't eat too much. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we have these storage containers, but you can't find the matching lid. It's like, what happens to the lids? Lids are impermanent, and it's just really, you just take a lid and, no, it doesn't fit, and I was trying to, no, that one doesn't fit either. Where do they go? It's like socks in the dryer. Like, where do they go? So there's these little examples of impermanence that can keep us irritated all day long, right? You expect something to go this way, and it doesn't go that way. And it always takes longer than you thought it was, and so on. Ill health. You know, we don't appreciate good health until we have ill health, until impermanent strikes. Then, we, then when we come back, hopefully, to good health, we appreciate it for a few days, and then it's just normal. Or a sprain, or a wasp bite. Here, the wasps, be careful. They, they actually bite. They just, like, bite a piece out of your skin. Or, you know, COVID is surging again. We didn't expect that to happen. We were warned, but we didn't really expect it to happen. So now we have to take COVID precautions. How annoying. Impermanence causing me suffering again. And what about the benefits of impermanence? 
Something new. Something new keeps appearing. You can't get bored. <laughs> you can't get bored. <laughs> if you appreciate impermanence and don't resist it, you can't get bored. Because things are always changing and arising and what else? An opportunity to see the ways you've grown since something similar happened. Yes, to see that you've changed. When some circumstance arises that yet that before would have made you really suffer. And now you're able to take it with some equanimity. Suffer less. Suffering less. That's the promise of our practice. It's fantastic. doesn't mean that suffering's ended overnight. This is a long habit, many lifetimes of habit, suffering. And not being able to do anything about it because we had no strategies for working with it. But now, through practice, we have strategies for working with it. Benefits of impermanence. Do you, so, do you, who has children? Raise your hand. Do you want them to be babies forever? Sort of. <laughs> right. So there's that thought, you know, they could just be these cute little babies forever. But actually, if they were, you'd still be changing diapers, you know? And they wouldn't have learned to talk. And, and, and you wouldn't have seen them change and grow. What else? Benefits of impermanence. When something painful ends. Thank you, Hunter. Beautiful example. That something painful will end because of impermanence. That's so wonderful. And when we're in the middle of it, we sometimes can't see it. But we know that if we even can hold on to the idea of this, this will change. Then it, it can give us, you know, the energy we need to go through something difficult. This will at least change. It may not end, but it will at least change. Like grief. It may not end completely, but it gets softer. and you know, we, we can return to some aspect of normalcy in life. Change, and change with greater compassion. Because whatever we suffer through teaches us compassion for people who are suffering that. Very same thing, right? I don't know if you noticed that, but I once when I had surgery and I got up to go to the bathroom in the hospital for the first time, I was like, this really hurts. I have never been compassionate enough to other to my patients. So that l- lesson we learn over and over again, right? I have never been compassionate enough to people who were going through this until I go through it. It's so inefficient, isn't it? that we can't learn compassion unless we suffer the same thing. True compassion. But that's kind of the inefficiency of the human life. We can experience the suffering of shock and grief when impermanence seems very sudden and brings a big change to our life. So I had a coworker at the hospital and um, her husband got the flu, and she, you know, got him all uh, set up with what he needed to be in his sickbed, and she went to work. And then at lunch, she went home to check on him, and he was dead. Mm. Human life is not permanent, and we forget this until the veil that covers up the fact that death could come at any time is suddenly lifted. That's what I, why I wrote about the mindfulness practice of this person could die tonight. 
when we really hold that, and we hold it in a positive way, not a negative way, it just opens appreciation for a person that we're saying goodnight to or saying goodbye to or is leaving. You know, the, the Japanese habit, especially in Zen training, of when somebody is leaving, like to go on a trip or even for the day, you, you, you make it a real goodbye. You know, you kiss goodbye or you wave goodbye. Traditionally, you wave until the car is out of sight. They can't see you and you can't see them. So it's that appreciation of that, of the transitoriness of life. You might not ever see them again. And this becomes more real the older we get. Like Hogan was late this morning, and so I'm calling. He's not answering. It's like, okay, maybe he's gone. I don't know. Then he shows up, and I'm so happy. (laughs) Just a few weeks ago, one of our members came home from going out to get coffee and found her husband of 40 years was dead. Going to get coffee is like was like ordinary mundane action for her. She'd done it many times. And when we do things many times, we stop paying attention to what's really happening. And then we're plunged into shock when there's suddenly a death or when we suddenly experience impermanence. I mean, think of the people in Florida in, in, the, in the Crystal River area. You know, they evacuate because of the hurricane. Idalia, and they go back, and there's no house anymore. Everything's just pieces of metal and sticks. Huge impermanence. First reaction could be, this is unfair, but I actually heard on NPR, they had an article on people in that area whose homes had been destroyed. They all got together and had a huge barbecue for everybody in town. So isn't that wonderful? That instead of moaning and crying and being angry, whatever. It's hard to get angry at a hurricane, but a couple of days after a hurricane, people start blaming people. Right? But instead of doing that, they decided to pull together as a community and support each other, and they had a big barbecue. It was wonderful. This is unfair. It's very interesting because... Um, when my mom moved to Oregon and moved into Willamette View, which is a three-tiered residence for people over 60, I think. Um, So there's independent living, assisted living, and then a nursing home. So you can go visit your friends when they end up in the nursing home, or they can visit you or your spouse. You know, you're not separated, just a short walk away. So uh, when she entered, they gave, they do an actuarial prediction. Do you want to know what your actuarial prediction is when you're 70? How many years you're going to live? We have to, we have, I, I think it's really important. My mom and dad were very practical. So my mom got an actuarial prediction of 15 more years of life. And her mom had, li- had lived till 99. So that was reasonable that she would live quite a bit longer. Even 15 years is not that long. It goes very fast, and it makes you think, what do I want to do in these remaining years? So she had an actuarial prediction of 15 years, and then she had a sudden stroke at night and died after seven years. And I'm driving around thinking, this is really unfair. But there's nothing unfair about it. 
But it seemed unfair because I was expecting 15 years. You know, when our expectations are destroyed, then an impermanent strikes, then we get upset. But then, so I'm driving around thinking about then. Then I get a call from one of my coworkers who said that a, a district attorney that we worked with, young woman district attorney we worked with in Washington County in our child abuse cases, her husband suddenly developed this sharp pain in his head, and he was—he knew he was very that something was very very wrong, and he told her, "Drive me to the hospital, right now." And as she was driving him to the hospital, these are people in their mid to late thirties. As she was driving him to the hospital, he died of an aneurysm. So I quit thinking that it was unfair for my mom who was 74 to die at 74. It just instantly erased that feeling of this is unfair. Mm -hmm. Unfair, you know, from the Buddhist point of view, nothing is really unfair. It's simply a chain of cause and effect. That's what karma means, a chain of cause and effect. There's a cause, there's an effect, and that effect becomes the cause for the next, next effect. And it goes down forever. Cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, leading quite precisely to something like a stroke. The cause and effect factors of what we eat and our specific genes come together to make fatty plaque build up in our coronary arteries or in the artery in your brain. And then finally a new little bit of plaque or builds up or a floating clot lodges in that particular spot and closes the artery off. Boom, stroke, heart attack. Cause and effect. In our practice we face the reality of cause and effect. Is it fair? Yes, from the point of view of cause and effect, it is completely fair. It is the natural result of a chain of cause and effect. Chan Master Shen Yang used to say about everything that happened, he said, this is normal. This is normal. It's a wonderful motto to carry around with you. This is normal. Meaning, in this case, impermanence is normal. Can we affect it? Can we change the chain of cause and effect? Can we alter it? Yes, we can. And through practice, we gain the clarity and wisdom to be able to know that it's happening and figure out how to change it. So about, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, my cholesterol level was over 200, which was kind of strange because I've been eating a vegetarian diet for many decades, and I was very active. So it has nothing to do with fair. That was what the level was, right? So then I pondered, okay, what, is there anything that I can change in my life that might change that? Because that's a level that's considered risky. So then I thought about it, and I realized, oh, yeah, I eat a vegetarian diet, but every night I was eating ice cream. Every night. So I stopped eating ice cream at night, and my cholesterol le level dropped right away. So we can work with a chain of cause and effect. 
if we're willing to change. And that's not easy. I missed the ice cream for a while, but it was worth it. Since both my parents died of strokes. Maybe I will too, I don't know. But there are things that I can do. This is the promise of liberation. This is the promise of liberation. With contemplation, with the clarity that comes with meditative contemplation, and with discipline, we can change. It is not easy. It may take years and years. But if we can live, as the chant this morning said, by following this path, then every place for them is safe. That's how that chant ends. Then every place for them is safe. Can you imagine living as if everything is safe, no matter what happens? It's possible. That's the promise of our practice, ultimately, after years and years of practice, even for the Buddha. But it's worth the effort that practice requires. I know that I asked Ajoman to have you contemplate impermanence uh, this morning as you were sitting and as you were doing kinhin. And so in our practice, we don't just go like, oh yeah, impermanence. We actually dive into it. And the smallest thing, lifting up our foot during walking meditation, putting it down again, all those sensations, diving into impermanence, the impermanence of our thoughts, the impermanence of our emotions, of our moods. Practice gives us the ability to change whatever is causing us suffering in this body, heart, mind. So sometimes I'm walking around the monastery, the residents have heard me say this, but I'll find that I'm in kind of a grumpy mood. But the, I know from practice I can change it. All I have to do is go from to and look at a few flowers and savor the air and look up at the sky. Especially at sunset, we have you know some very nice sunsets today. Can change your mood completely. Sometimes we run in to the kitchen after dinner and say, sunset alert, and everybody piles out and just looks at the sunset and it changes your mood. Impermanence is woven into the other marks of existence. So dukkha, suffering, is often misunderstood. It doesn't mean that we're all born and condemned to a life of unhappiness, disappointment, and grief. That's not what it means. That's not what the Buddha was talking about. It means that ultimately, things that we acquire or other people cannot bring us satisfaction and permanent happiness. Certainly, we can experience times of satisfaction or joy, like we were talking at breakfast about this. We were talking about a new car. The joy that a new car brings, somebody mentioned that. But how long does it bring joy, right? Or the joy that um, a few drinks or a good meal with pleasant friends bring. But how long does it last? Or the USA women's soccer team winning the World Cup last year. How long did that last? Anybody know? They lost to Spain this year. Great suffering. <laughs> Or the disappearance of the need for COVID precautions from our lives. How long did that last? 
right? So there's joy and happiness when things change, but then impermanence strikes again. They don't last, they're impermanent, and here comes dissatisfaction again. So impermanence is woven into dukkha, which we could call suffering, but it means, you know, has various meanings, friction and unsatisfactoriness. The ultimate unsatisfactoriness of a new car, for example. Anatta is also infused with impermanence. This is no self. The Buddha taught that there is no permanent self that inhabits this skin bag. This experience of a continuous I that was born exists for our lifetime and then dies and goes somewhere. Somewhere. Does it go into a new skin bag? Does it go to heaven to get a white robe and wings and a harp and walk around and play and sing? We don't know. We could have beliefs about it, but we don't really know. Where does it go, this I? So it's at least that impermanent that death is inevitable. But then if you really watch it day to day, it's completely impermanent, this collection of elements and thoughts and desires, physical, mental, and sensory processes that we call myself is always in flux and completely impermanent. Heraclitus, who was a Greek philosopher, but didn't live in Greece, um, he, he first espoused that we know of the idea of flux, that life is flux. But the Buddha also talked about it. Because it's true, when we really look. So as we practice meditation, we see this happening. Joy at a new possession turning into, oh yeah, or into problems, computer failure, car battery goes dead, or if you bought an electric car, you go on vacation, you can't find a charging station, it turns into unhappiness. So many, many examples in our lives, right? The truth of constant change means that we're going to inevitably encounter dissatisfaction and friction again. That's what the Buddha was talking about. It's inevitable to encounter these in life. But as we ponder, and to me, ponder is difficult, different from thinking. Thinking is like the da-da-da-da-da in our mind that kind of drives us crazy when we first sit down to meditate. Past, future, if only this had happened that way, the way I wanted it to happen, but you can't change the past. You can keep trying, the mind can keep trying. Or the future, or if this happens this way, or no, what if it happens that way? You know, that's thinking. But meditation lets us clear away a lot of that extraneous thinking, and then what I call pondering. My mom, who was, who was a Christian, not a Buddhist, but she said, my favorite time of day, as she got older, is when I first wake up, because my mind is clear and I can ponder the important questions of life. So pondering is different. Pondering is like dropping a question or dropping a, a, a stone into a clear pool, and it goes down blah, 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 to the bottom. But those rings spread out. And eventually, insight arises, if we're patient. 
we stay out of the way. So if we ponder, meditation allows us this time and clarity to ponder, we can see that the only thing that we can actually change, we can actually change in the chain of cause and effect is ourselves. You know, you've heard me talk many times about how hard you have to work to try to change another person who's very close to you and you can make them very miserable. And maybe they'll change for a while, but they probably won't be happy. The only person we can effectively change to find liberation from our ordinary suffering is ourselves. So this is where I do my demonstration. Anybody know what this is called? I haven't brought this out for years. It's called what? Something like that. Forgot. Can you come and hold this for me so I can do the demonstration? So you have to hold it up about like this. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so this is cause and effect. Right? This is a cause and effect, which becomes the cause for another effect, and it goes on. If there were no friction, it would go on forever. But there is friction. Okay, so in our practice, what we do is take ourselves out. And because we're not continually rehearsing whatever we're upset about, it gradually dies down, and that's liberation. So remember this. This is endless chain of cause and effect, handed down over generations, generation after generation. But if we take ourselves out, Gradually, it dies down. If we take ourselves out in a major way, it doesn't last very long at all. It does, there isn't even any reaction on the other side. Thank you so much. My lovely demonstrator. <laughs> so the promise of our practice is that we can increasingly find equanimity in the midst of constant change. Being bumped again and again by impermanence. And we have the ability to not just accept, but to learn from what's happening that we don't like. So instead of avoiding it, we actually can move into it and learn from it. And pain is a classic example. Pain in, in meditation is a classic example. We can learn so much from pain in physical pain in meditation and mental emotional pain too if we're willing to be there with it just to be with it and not feed it not feed it with thoughts not feed it with avoidance just be with it um, I'm going to for those of you who aren't residents here Pancho and Joman have just faced incredible impermanence in their home. So when they moved here to the monastery to begin 
helping to lead the monastery, they left their house in Portland, which was an old house. We were laughing yesterday because I was reminding Bancho that they went underneath the house. What was the reason you went underneath the house? Uh huh. In the crawl space. And there was a big piece of driftwood holding up part of the house. <laughs> he said, some, you know, some previous owner said to his son, go fix that thing in the crawl space, you know, put, shore it up. So, anyway, it was an older house. And when they moved here, they wanted to rent it out, so they had to fix it up, um, kind of modernize it. So they were going to just, you know, paint and some new vinyl in the kitchen and a few changes. Well, then it turned out um, they had to replace the oil-burning furnace. So thank goodness that didn't involve digging up the tank and then clearing all the leaks from the tank or the furnace because there weren't any, thank goodness, because that can take years and cost a lot of money. So new HVAC heat pump. So then... um, they took out the. They were taking out the old appliances and putting in new appliances, and so they took, the dishwasher was taken out. And over the next day, when nobody was there, or until people came in the next morning, uh, something burst, pipe burst, and the water flooded the kitchen, which uh, ruined the floor, ruined the cupboards. So the kitchen eventually had to be taken down to the studs. So then they have to remodel the whole kitchen. New cabinets, new floor, everything. So then asbestos was discovered in that process. So then there's that whole asbestos clearing process, right? Removal. And then they had been smelling smoke periodically and couldn't find a source for the smoke. Could smell it down on the first floor in the basement, but then they noticed a scorch mark on the wall up on the second floor. And they'd had the whole place rewired because the wiring was really old and needed to be rewired. So it had just been freshly rewired. And it turns out that a wire had gotten pinched, and so that makes the whole wire heat up for the extent of the wiring. And the house could have burned down. And then, you know, the head electrician came and said, you know, it was carelessness. It was just carelessness. So all those events of cause and effect, right? Pipe bursting, pinched wire. And because of their practice, they accepted it with a remarkable equanimity. I mean, you, you guys were just amazing. You just come and tell us about the new thing that happened. It's like, what you have to do about it. And it's like, ooh, one after another in rapid succession. Hmm? So they're going to do, um, they think the house is maybe unhappy that they've left, so they're going to do some kind of ceremony to calm it down. (laughs) So impermanence is a foundational Buddhist teaching and a foundational practice for us. First, we might come to mindfulness and meditation practice to relieve anxiety or to learn to relax or have a more peaceful mind to go back into the fray. But if we stay with it, it involves mind training. And mind training, it takes a long time. We're trying to change not only this mind that exists for how many years we've been alive, but 
what was handed down to us through epigenetics and behavior of our parents and grandparents and so on. But we can train our mind to recognize impermanence and eventually to feel safe within it. And a feeling of safetyness and happiness comes from aligning with the truth of existence. So, in the Samyutta Nikaya, which is some of the original Buddhist teachings, is this quote, In this manner the world is afflicted by death and decay, but the wise do not grieve, having realized the nature of the world. Now, in Zen practice, we would say, yes, we grieve if somebody dies. We grieve, but underneath, underneath that grief is foundational equanimity and a return to happiness even moments of happiness in the midst of the grief, joy. Sharon Salzberg, who, wrote, who um, wrote the first book in English on loving-kindness practice, says, Impermanence is the very fabric of our lives. It's, just, it's not just that our lives are always changing, but our lives are made up of change. So that is the, the foundational element of our life, change. Ajahn Chah, who was a very Zen-like teacher in the Thai forest tradition, said, Conditions are impermanent and unstable. Having come into being, they disappear again. Having arisen, they pass away. And yet everyone wants them to be permanent. This is foolishness. And then Pao Kohelo, anyone who has lost something they thought was theirs forever finally comes to realize that nothing really belongs to them. And ultimately, nothing belongs to us. That's very hard to realize. We acquire things. You know, we're trying to unacquire things, and Pancho and Joman have been trying to unacquire things, appreciate it, and pass it on. Whether it's to our family or to Goodwill or the auction for the annual dinner, However, it gets passed on. In Japanese culture, there's a way of turning around our distress into appreciation, our distress at impermanence into appreciation. So, for example, the um, Cherry Blossom Festival, which creates a lot of excitement in Japan, and they track on big screen TVs all over the place how the cherry blossoms are blooming, you know, starting in the south and moving north. And, and people have picnics under the cherry blossoms and poems and songs. And, but it's an appreciation not only of their beauty when they're blooming, but of the fragility of their life. That when they fall, it's an appreciation of their short lives, of impermanence. Also, there's something called wabi-sabi. Have you heard of wabi-sabi? in Japanese culture and art. It's appreciating beauty that is imperfect, impermanent, and incomplete, both in nature and in our lives. The one person describes wabi-sabi, if an object or expression can bring about within us a sense of serene melancholy and spiritual longing, you are here today because of spiritual longing because you know there's something underneath reality. 
that you haven't touched yet or realized yet that is ultimately satisfying and permanent. So if someone can, if something can bring about a sense of serene melancholy and a spiritual longing, then that object could be said to be wabi-sabi. Or another author says, wabi-sabi nurtures all that is authentic by acknowledging three simple realities. Nothing lasts, nothing is finished, and nothing is perfect. It's wabi-sabi, not wasabi. Wabi-sabi. <laughs> so in one real sense, wabi-sabi is a training where you learn to find the most basic, natural objects, fascinating and beautiful. Fading autumn leaves is a perfect example. Again, in Japan, tremendous appreciation for the change of the beautiful leaves of the Japanese maples. And people go to the temples where the trees are, or parks where the trees are, um, and just appreciate the impermanent, the beauty of impermanence. The beauty of the leaves and the flowers, but the beauty of impermanence. Wabi-sabi can change our perception of the world so that a chip or a, or a crack, and this is my favorite example here. So here's a vase. You know, a nice, white, ordinary vase. But it dropped and it cracked. And so it got repaired and you can see the repair. And this is a whole technique in Japan of repairing things with gold, or people now do it with gold-colored epoxy, because gold is so expensive. But it makes this vase so much more interesting than this plain white vase, right? So the flowers are interesting, but the vase always draws my attention. Because this, this beautiful thing, which you couldn't produce on purpose, which was produced accidentally, is it just enhances the, the beauty of this of this simple vase. So Ikebana is the same, which Soshin does so beautifully with his flower arrangements. And Raku, where you never can predict what's going to come out of that kiln. And often, it's very funny, sometimes we take things out of the kiln here, and the person who made it goes, oh, it didn't turn out like I wanted it to. But then somebody else comes in, they look at it and they say, wow, did you make that? That is so beautiful. I've seen that happen again and again. It's so interesting when it happens. And then the person who made it goes, hmm, all right, maybe it's all right. Hmm? Disappointed expectations, but then can we let them go and really see the thing as it is? Also, in, the, in Wikipedia, it said, wabi-sabi has been evoked in a mental health context as a helpful concept for reducing perfectionist thinking. So, we talk a lot about the inner critic, which is interested in driving us to perfection. But would we really, really like to be perfect and have to maintain that perfection? Would we really like to be 
have friends who are perfect or a partner who's perfect. Our practice really brings us to mental health by reducing perfectionist thinking and all other types of unnecessary thinking that bring us to suffering. So here's my favorite poet is Mary Oliver. And these are a few quotes from her. Listen, are you breathing just a little and calling it a life? Another one of her poems. You might want to cry aloud for your mistakes, but to tell the truth, the world doesn't need any more of that sound. And then she has a poem, I love this, on meditating sort of. So that's true of all of us, right? We discover, oh yeah, I was meditating sort of. (laughs) So she describes meditating lying under a tree, which we do during the grasses and trees retreat. For seven days, we're lying down under trees or leaning up against trees. So here's her meditating sort of. This is the last stanza. Of course, I wake up finally thinking, of course, she goes to sleep. (laughs) How wonderful to be who I am, made out of earth and water, my own thoughts, my own fingerprints, all that glorious temporary stuff. And another, from another one of her poems, though I play at the edges of knowing, truly I know our part is not knowing, but looking and touching and loving, which is the way I walked on softly through the pale pink morning light. When we accept the truth of impermanence, more than accept it, when we investigate it, when we investigate it first within what I call myself, the skin bag and all of its contents, my body, my walking, my breathing, my eating, and then we investigate it in the, what we call the external world. And then finally we align with the flow of life. It is such an amazing experience. Mary Oliver also said, when the thumb of fear lifts, we are so alive. This is the promise of liberation, to be truly alive, to have access to wisdom, to experience spontaneous loving kindness and compassion to experience safety as we align with the flow of our life. So please continue with practice throughout your whole life.